You are listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies and the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu forward slash Ellison Center. Welcome. Thanks for coming today. We are lucky to have with us Emily Grebel from Vanderbilt, who will be talking about her second book project, I believe, yes? Uh, I'm Scott Radness, the director of the Ellison Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies, and there are little flyers here that might have gone around the room about uh, future events we're having. So um, Emily is a historian of the Balkans and Eastern Europe. Her research interests include Islam in Europe, the transition from empire to nation state, civil conflict, and local responses to socialism. Her very well-regarded first book is called Sarajevo, 1941 to 1945, Muslims, Christians, and Jews in Hitler's Europe. That title is good because it has a lot of key words that people search for. Very smart. (laughs) Titles of books matter, actually, if you're planning to publish them, especially these days. Uh, Her current project, she'll talk about today, so I probably don't need to summarize that. and Emily in the past has been supported by numerous grants, including Fulbright, Fulbright Hayes, ACLS, the Mellon Foundation, IREX, and NEH. She has had residential fellowships at the Remark Institute in New York, at New York University, at the Belfer Center at Harvard, which is where we met, actually, 10 years ago, I think. Was it 10 years ago? I think it was 10 years ago. I, yeah. 2006. Yeah. Um, and at the Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies in D.C. She was at... Uh, Queens College, City College College for the first part of her career, and she will be, she is at, she's at but not in Vanderbilt, but we'll be moving physically to Vanderbilt starting next academic year. Mm -hmm. So I've said enough, and I will hand the table over to Emily Graham. Thank you so much, Scott, and thank you all for coming. And I especially thank the students who um, I have been told are studying the 90s in this region, and my talk today is going to focus on the early part of the 20th century, but I am absolutely happy to talk about sort of how these themes relate to the 90s or even the present, because I've spent quite a bit of time living in Muslim-majority regions of the Balkans over the last six years, um, including many trips with my two small children, which has been sort of fun. Um, So in my talk today, I'm going to discuss how Sharia law came to be enshrined in the constitution of interwar Yugoslavia, which was considered a modern European democracy um, that it really envisioned itself as a quintessential European nation state. And I'd like to discuss what this tells us about the transformation from empire to nation state and also the nature of minority protections in Europe. Um, But in the first few minutes or so, I'd just like to share with you a little bit about um, my approach, what makes me excited about working on the Balkans, and sort of how I come to my work as a historian. Because I feel like when we attend these kinds of talks, it's always useful to know sort of how the story is being put together. So my scholarship is, there we go, this is a map of Europe with the Balkans uh, in the white box on the bottom. Um, So my scholarship and teaching is driven by this belief that 
in order to understand Europe as a place, an idea, and a political concept, we have to look at both Belgrade and Moscow. We have to look at Paris and Britain. But we have to do this all. We can't just look at one part of the region. And I think that European legacies are as much about the French Revolution as they are about the Ottoman Empire. Um, and I think that as historians uh, can explore the narratives of communities, cities, networks, and movements in regions that we often think of as peripheral, we're better equipped to think about and to study sort of this inclusive idea of Europe as a whole. And we're also able to challenge narratives that have become popular. Um, and in my case, as we'll discuss today, um, one, the one that I'm working on right now is this question of Islam in Europe. So I like to work on the Balkans. I think that it's sort of this fascinating place. Um, it was the place where the Habsburg and Ottoman empires converged in the late 19th and 20th centuries. It was a place where you had both empires and nation states, two models of government, that were existing in the same spaces at the same time. It was also a place where you had a lot of networks, um, economic networks, political networks, intellectual networks, between the broader Mediterranean and Europe. So it was this sort of area of the transfer of knowledge, of ideas, um, and of, sort of political processes. So in my larger book project, what I'm looking at right now is I'm investigating the experiences of Muslims after they cease to be part of the Ottoman Empire. And I was talking at lunch today. This has sort of two parts. The book began as part two, and then I realized actually that there needed to be an earlier part. So the first part looks at from 1878, the Congress of Berlin, until the through the First World War, um, this moment when many parts, you know, the Kingdom of Serbia, Bulgaria, um, <clears throat> Montenegro, they break away from the Ottoman Empire and become their, their own states. The second part of the book, so that's sort of this first map, and we'll come back to this in a moment. Um, and the second part of the book then looks at what happens to Muslims after these regions become part of Yugoslavia. And, and I trace this here in the 1920s, 30s, and early 40s, a period in which Yugoslavia was a democracy, and then an authoritarian state, and then under uh, both Nazi occupation, Italian occupation, Bulgarian occupation, I don't think the Greeks ever got there, but <laughs> everyone else. Um, and then it became part of Tito's communist Yugoslavia in the 1940s. So research-wise, the way that I approach this topic um, is I try to bring together the stories of, sort of both government sources and communities of Muslims on the ground. So I look at the offices of muftis, the records from madrasas, um, the court proceedings of Sharia courts, uh, the documents related to vahs, which were the Muslims' pious endowments. Um, and then I situate these in the government records, both national and municipal, um, of seven different regional governments and occupation regimes. Um, this includes, I also use British, French, and American sort of consular reports to try to get a sense of how people were actually thinking about what Muslims were doing and how they were living in these countries after they ceased to be part of the Ottoman Empire. Um, so this analysis of what I like to think of the, as the messy transition of post-Ottomanism, um, whether we look at Bosnia in the 1880s or Kosovo in the 1920s, what this reveals is that 
While the transformation from empire to nation state um, was quite messy, it was also quite dynamic. Um, and there was a lot of negotiating going on over what a post-imperial state would look like. So now when historians often talk about empires and nation states, we historically have seen these two models as, of statehood as different, right? We took, and, and often even in tension with each other. Empires are understood as politically fluid spaces where diverse populations have differentiated rights. They allowed for possibilities of local autonomy. Um, they allowed for sort of overlapping structures of law. You would have one set of law you know, in India, and you'd have another set of law in the core of Britain, but it was still considered a single sort of imperial space. And you would see this in the land empires of Europe as well. There would be different laws and policies in Russia, in the center, and, and in the periphery. And this contrasted to the way we often think of a nation state, which we understand is centralized, having a single judiciary, a single body of laws that everybody sort of buys into. Um, but I think a new wave of scholars, including actually someone sitting here today, Devin Nair, um, have shown that these lines are not so clear cut. Um, and that as nation states were emerging from empires, um, they were still multi-ethnic. And many of them continued to use the same tools of empire as they had, um, as, as had existed in the region before. I show in my work that nation states were able to appropriate imperial structures and concepts, that they also created hierarchies of citizenship and differentiated rights, similar to what we saw in empires, um, and that liberal, uh, even liberal democracies and authoritarian states had elements of legal pluralism. In the Balkans, the Ottoman legacy of thinking about Muslims as a separate community left an imprint on how this process evolved and how states like Yugoslavia, Bulgaria, Montenegro started to kind of think about what a Muslim citizen was going to look like in a European state. So, Importantly, I don't mean to <laughs> suggest that the end of empire was not marked by a lot of violence. There were mass expulsions. There were uh, great trauma that occurred throughout the region. Hundreds of thousands of people were uprooted. But I am interested, and, and part of what I'm going to talk about today, is this other story that was going on in addition or sort of simultaneously to the violence that we know of in World War I, um, which was a story of negotiation and coercion and compromise. Um, muftis, for example, local Muslim leader, uh, religious leaders on the ground, were vigorously debating with civil court judges over the legal presumptions about marriage in 1915. Headmasters of madrasas were challenging new directives from the ministries of education over questions of religious freedom and saying, you know, what does religious freedom look like when you get to a classroom? So I think that as we look at sort of closely look at moments on the ground from the perspective of, sort of the Muslim communities experiencing this transformation, we see that there was a lot of possibility for compromise, for coercion, and also for the continuity of Ottoman structures. And that's where our story begins today. So we're going to start in 1914. This is a map of the Balkans 
Uh, I don't think you can quite see, but I have here uh, Monastir is a town in the south, and up here, this square uh, is Novi Pazar, um, and in that is also a town called Sienica, and I'm going to talk about them both. So over the winter of 1913 to 1914, after the Ottomans had lost their provinces of Macedonia to Serbia and Greece and Bulgaria, a group of Muslims in Monastir, the city in the south, <clears throat> petitioned the local British consul, partly in jest, to become British subjects. They seemed not to be bothered by the fact that the British Empire did not exist anywhere near their town, nor did it have any claim to Muslims of the region. Another flailing attempt three years later, in 1917, in the white box at the top right near Novi Pazar in the city of Sienica, about a dozen elite Muslims came together, and they petitioned Austria-Hungary to annex their town. Now, this was a particularly poor wartime calculation, because if you know anything about World War I, you know in 1917, the Austro-Hungarians were not, it was not looking like victory was on the horizon. Um, but these Muslim notables made it clear that they greatly preferred to be part of a Habsburg empire, even in its dying moments, than to be part of a Serbian state. As the war ended, 1918, Yugoslavia is founded, a small group of Kosovar Albanian Muslims, also living in that area of the sort of the square, petitioned America to become an imperial zone. They want the US to take them on as sort of an occupied autonomous area. Now, none of these prospects had any hope, right? These were just failed attempts. But what I think that they show us is that empire was looking pretty good to Muslims who were suddenly faced with being minorities in nation states. Under empire, whether Ottoman or Habsburg, they had some leverage, they had access, they controlled their own communities, economies, and religious structures. And in many regions, Muslims had dominated politics, at least of a particular town or village. But these nation states that were coming to power, whether Greece or Bulgaria or Yugoslavia, um, had very little interest in working with Muslims as a separate group. As nation states were forming, it was precisely this old legacy of the Ottoman Empire that they were rejecting. Um, so looking around them, prominent Muslims started to rack their brains. Many left, but many stayed. And the ones who stayed were trying to figure out how they might survive as a community within the new state. Now we all know how the Great War played out. Uh, the days of empire were numbered, and as the imperial systems collapsed, anarchy spread throughout this region of the Balkans. From 1918 until 1921, Muslims across the region realized that they had to figure out a way to position themselves in new nation states if they were going to stay in their homes. And one of the major ways they decided this was going to happen was by preserving Sharia law. Now, at an international level, a new understanding of the international system was taking shape. And we often think of this as the Wilsonian moment, um, a moment when liberty and quality and democracy and self-determination were the buzzwords of the day. States were using these to sort of set up new frameworks of thinking. It was a kind of a hopeful period in uh, international rhetoric. 
But these terms were ambiguously defined and they were inconsistently applied, right? which is why you end up with Czechoslovakia and not Slovakia. <laughs> and the great powers decided that sovereign nation states throughout Europe were going to replace the empires. Um, now, members of the Balkans, uh, various Balkan elites, they sent delegates to Paris, like other groups, where they would appeal for a post-war nation state. But of course, they all had conflicting ideas of what these nation states were going to look like. And by the time the lines were drawn in the map, about 25 million people in Europe suddenly had become either stateless or a national minority. And so we have here, uh, this is the 1919 Europe, just sort of the big picture. Here is our region of the Balkans. And then here's sort of a close up back to that other slide that I had showed earlier. So one of these states that formed from the ashes of empire was Yugoslavia. <clears throat> and Yugoslavia's leaders considered their state, like other nation states, uh, to be a state of the nation of Yugoslavs, which means South Slavs. And what they wanted to do was integrate all of the South Slavic groups that lived in that area, Serbs, Croats, Slovenes, um, into a, a single na national model. In religious terms, the nation included Orthodox Christians, Catholics, Muslims, and Jews. Now, the Yugoslav national mythology, and, and I'm simplifying here, it emphasized that the Yugoslav nation had been divided and oppressed for centuries by the Habsburgs and the Ottomans, um, and now they were going to overthrow the old feudalist system that had left Yugoslavs poor and backwards, uh, and they were going to unite the nation and overcome the past, and it was going to be this glorious moment of integration and brotherhood. Um, the landscape was going to be filled with railways and factories and schools, and the political system was going to be based in a pure democracy. This was the vision that the intellectuals had. Now, reality on the ground did not meet this idyllic plan. These alleged national brothers had just spent four years fighting each other in a pretty vicious, multi-sided civil war. From the outset, there was a power imbalance. The Serbian army had gotten the green light from the allies to liberate and consolidate Yugoslav territory. And Serbia had already had a central government, a standing army, and consular relationships with great powers, which put them in a really strategic role to, to negotiate. Um, and as Serb soldiers marched across the region, they did not see all of their Slavic Yugoslav brothers as brothers. They saw them as enemy soldiers. So they pillaged their villages, burned their estates, and established pretty uh, ruthless occupation governments in which only Serbs held power. They set up um, local military tribunals that imprisoned and at times tried an ambiguously defined set of enemies, many of whom in the regions I look at were Muslim civilians and their crime was being Muslim. Now, immediately, Muslim leaders spoke out against this. The chief mufti of Bosnia rebuked the Yugoslav government in 1919 for failing to protect Muslims from the paramilitaries, which he argued had killed thousands of Muslims and decimated hundreds of their villages. One prominent Bosnian Muslim, a man by the name of Adam Aga Mesic, he was an Ottoman noble and then also a Habsburg noble, so he sort of continued his status through two empires, uh, he argued in a memoir that he never finished 
that Muslims felt like an occupied people starting in 19, 1918, and that this feeling of occupation did not go away until 1941, when, ironically, the Nazis occupied the region. So for Mesich and many other elite Muslims, liberation came in the form of Nazi occupation, which is a story I think we see um, more prominently uh, in a lot of histories of Europe than this sort of earlier story. So Muslims didn't really like this new European order that was being founded, and so many of them would sort of wait and hold out for another new order that would be founded. Um, the violence and political uncertainty of the end of this empire and the beginning of a new state raised a lot of questions for Muslims. Would they be treated equally as citizens, as the new constitutions were promising all over the place? Would they keep their jobs, property, and homes? Would they be welcomed into positions of political power? And then there was this question of minority protections, which was circulating in the international community. And Muslims wanted to know, what did international protection mean for Muslims? So just to back up for a second, the minority protection system had come about because the great powers didn't trust the new states that they were creating to act nicely toward their minorities. So they made promises, uh, they made each of the new states promise that minorities would have the right to speak their national language, practice their faiths, and run their own schools and cultural societies. They also argued that Muslims should be free from discrimination in politics and economics, which is sort of an odd and somewhat subjective formulation. The idea was that if minority communities felt their rights were violated, they could then appeal to the League of Nations, though the system ended up having very few checks in place to make sure it actually happened. Now these clauses, these minority rights and minority protections clauses, were an odd thing that complicated nation building. The Polish press called them a vexing and humiliating uh, arrangement for small states because they undermined the state's ability to define its own national, cultural, and linguistic program. But the great powers believed that these clauses were necessary uh, to, as part of the post-war humanitarian effort and the part of redrawing borders. Many small communities fought for these rights, um, using the idea of their national minority rights to secure additional rights within states. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Now, the most well-known example of how this became used was the German minority that was living all throughout uh, Eastern Europe at the time, um, who ended up in many different countries and then became sort of an excuse as the Nazis themselves were expanding their borders in the 1930s. Now, for Muslims on the ground in Yugoslavia, it was clear that um, <clears throat> they formed some kind of minority. Uh, but Muslims had they deep Sorry. So Muslims were a distinct collective, and everyone agreed upon this. Um, but they had these deep-rooted local cultures. And I use the word cultures here in the plural very deliberately. Uh, immediately, there was an essential problem of how to fit Muslims in Yugoslavia into this new system of a minority. On the ground, both the categories of nation and national minority were generally parsed out using language, cultural practices, and ethnicity. The Balkan Muslims undermined all of these categories. 
If you look at a 1921 census in Yugoslavia, it will tell you that 12% of the population was Muslim. For context, that's about the same percentage as we have in Paris today, or in France today. But these presumptions were based on a faulty sort of framing that positioned Muslims as a single community, and it masked the tremendous diversity within them. Some Muslims were identified as groups that few of us have ever heard of, Ashkalia, Bosniazzi, Gorani, Pomak, Shehirli, and Torbeshi. Some fell into national categories that you probably have heard of, Albanians, Turks, Roma, Serbs, Croats. Muslims in this region spoke various Slavic dialects, Ottoman Turkish, Arabic, Romani, and Albanian. They practiced different forms of Islam, ranging from mystical and heterodox Sufi approaches to more orthodox Sunnism. They did not have, in the way that sort of Christian, European Christian churches have a hierarchical system and a central administration, they had nothing like that on the ground. Several distinct legal schools shaped marital inheritance and clothing practices around the country. So just to give you sort of a shot, um, here we see Muslims in two different cities of Yugoslavia in the interwar. The one on your left is in Zagreb, where you see sort of Muslim women in sort of very sort of Western-oriented attire. And the one on the right is a bazaar in Sarajevo, where Muslim women continued to wear what is called a fereja, sort of a local version of um, a niqab with a black veil over the face. Well until the 1950s, Muslims throughout Yugoslavia, especially in urban areas, wore a fereja. Now, what was making Muslims considered to be a minority in 1919 as they're working out minority protections laws was not that Muslims themselves felt to be a single minority, but that the European powers who were defining the terms of minority viewed them as such. Um, now, this becomes especially clear, this idea of how we think about Muslims, if we look at this ethnographic map that was created in 1914. Now, I know you can't read all of the terms, so I'm just going to tell you briefly what it is. Um, there is no mention of Muslim anywhere in this map, but the pink is defined as Turks, the yellow-orange are Albanians, and the gray are Serbs who speak Albanian, a term that was understood to quantify Muslim. <laughs> who had identified in some way loyally as Serb. So both pink, yellow, orange, and gray are all Muslims, but they're being defined differently in sort of a ethnographic sense by the local national cultures. So even within really mixed regions, we can see how things are, sort of, there, there's a lot of ambiguity to identity on the ground. On top of this jumble of language, ethnicity, and religions, Muslims were also profoundly separated by class. There were elites, merchants, working class in the cities. In rural areas, Muslims were both landowning classes and peasants. So this is all to say that Muslims foiled almost laughably all the standards that were being used in Paris to come up with an idea of what minority rights were going to look like. Um, <clears throat> Now, going even further, these categories of identity were not necessarily even limited to a particular locale or a particular person. Residents of the same towns used multiple languages for different purposes. Someone might speak Turkish in a bazaar. They might use Albanian at home. They might write in Ottoman Turkish when petitioning the government. 
1921, 141 Muslim men representing one town sent a petition to the Yugoslav government in which half signed in uh, Ottoman script and half signed their names in Serbian. Some people even used different names. They had an Albanian name, a Slavic name, and a Turkish name, and they would sort of use them interchangeably, and they were not, they did not always match. You wouldn't see them and say, aha, I know who that is. So and I want to point out that these are all perfectly reasonable sort of practices in areas with layered pasts. Um, but it is important for us to be thinking about this as we think of sort of what this minority rights was going to look like um, on the ground. Now, to upset this model even more, a Muslim's language often indicated nothing about his political loyalty or ethnicity. A lot of Turkish and Albanian speaking communities in the parts of the Balkans that would become part of Yugoslavia had no interest in becoming part of Turkey or Albania. Why? These countries were moving toward a more secular approach to nation state which did not sit well with many conservative Muslims. So for example, the women in Faraja you know, could not go into a public office or attend public schools in Albania or Turkey, but they could in Yugoslavia. And so you actually see reverse migration from parts of Turkey in the interwar where conservative Muslims moved to Yugoslavia to set up madrasas and sort of create local underground movements, political movements that are more consistent with what we tend to think of by the 1930s as Islamist. So finally, there's a question that this model of linguistic and national minorities does not work because the majority of the Muslims who stayed in Yugoslavia were Slavic-speaking Muslims. They identified as Yugoslavs. For them, Hungarians, Italians, and Germans were foreigners or minorities but they had bought into this idea that they were part of this wonderful Yugoslav nation that was taking off. And they were frustrated by the idea that someone would say, no, you're going to be a minority now, because they felt like they were part of the national, sort of core national group. So the lingering question then, coming back to 1919, 1920, as great powers and local political leaders are trying to figure out this whole question of minority rights and Muslim rights was how do you define Muslim rights? Who is a Muslim and who gets to define what their rights will be in a new European state? Could Muslim communities be considered Yugoslavs? Were they fully part of this Yugoslav nation and equal as citizens? Were they minorities? Did they constitute a protected minority that should have separate legal rights um, now the stakes were not simply a question of identity politics, figuring out like who's, you know, who is what, but the stakes were questions of citizenship, property, peace, and also the ways that Muslims would be understood as either European or not European. Now to manage this question, the Yugoslav government, which was based in Belgrade, really needed a strong bureaucracy. Um, some, a group of public servants who would sort of create a standardized set of reporting, administration, and education. And in the 19, early 1920s, Yugoslavia had exactly the opposite. After a decade of war, the country's infrastructure and communication networks had been decimated. These unwieldy paramilitaries were roaming all throughout the region. Um, and local communities were largely on their own in figuring out how to engage with minorities. 
Now, in many parts of the region, Muslims were simply never going to be considered part of the citizenry, regardless of what language they spoke and regardless of any kind of affirmations of loyalty. Now, in some towns, local officials came in uh, and they said they were going to create governing committees that had equal representation. So in the city of Novi Pazar, which is in southern Serbia, the local Serb mayor established a committee that had roughly an equal number of Muslims and Serbs um, and, and one Jew who served on every committee. He was the same, the same person appointed to every single committee. I have no idea how this guy got all of his work done. So, uh, and these committees saw everything from regulating food prices to organizing night patrols of the city to even deciding whether or not someone could move into the town because they didn't want to disrupt the balance. But this was a rare case. In most of towns, the local Serb officials preferred retributive justice. Um, and this situation really got out of control for the national government. It was breeding unrest, and it was also sort of embarrassing because they had created this idea that Yugoslavia was going to be sort of have egalitarian concepts of citizenship and that it was going to be a law and order democracy. Um, <clears throat> So the Ministry of Interior formally insisted, sent out a letter to all local officials, that they had to investigate crimes committed against Muslims, and they had to introduce measures um, that ended the witch hunt against Muslims occurring in many parts of the region. But the provincial officials, they pushed back. They were baffled by Belgrade's efforts. To their minds, far too many Muslims were enemies of the state, not members of a nation, or even minorities who should be tolerated. A local official in the town of Ohrid, Macedonia, was shocked to be reprimanded for behaving poorly toward Muslims and taking away their weapons. He complained that the government did not understand how difficult it was to deal with Muslims. Similarly, an official in Sienica, this is the same town where they had a petition to be part of Austria-Hungary, complained that it was wrong to suggest that Muslims were not treated equally. In fact, he claimed, Muslims were so free in this new state that they, quote, constantly complain about it. Everything bothers them in this new country of ours, since they do not feel that they are Serbian, nor will they feel that way for a long time, quote. So to a lot of local officials, Muslims were traitors by virtue of their previous associations with the Ottomans, um, or simply by being Muslim. And this sort of spoke to this idea that Yugoslavia was created as a rejection of the Ottoman Empire and what sort of was the last vestige of Ottomanism, it was Muslims themselves. So the question became, how could Muslims be given weapons, votes, amnesty? Right? How, for local officials, this was a really sort of complicated and uh, contentious moment. Now on the ground, the Muslim leaders who were in these communities recognized that the international system was changing. And they knew that life was supposed to be getting better for them. They fully understood that there was this new discourse of international minority rights and that they should somehow be protected from it. In a petition to central government just days after Yugoslavia signed minorities protection clauses, Muslims in a town called Bielopolje, which is in the eastern mountains of Montenegro, which had almost 100% illiteracy, complained that since the moment of liberation, Christian officials had thrown out Muslim votes, taken their property, and targeted civilians. Life was, quote, unbearable for Muslims in this town. And so they asked, quote, will the government ensure that Muslims have the rights that were given to them by the laws of this country, end quote. It's kind of remarkable. This is a town without a newspaper, like really no radios. 
this is mostly illiterate. Um, and yet, merely days after the minority protections clauses are being signed, they are already using the language of it in their petitions to the state. Dozens of petitions arrive in Belgrade like this, using similar language on rights and equal protection under the law. Now, importantly, petitioning was a really common uh, political tactic within the Ottoman Empire. So we see here Muslims adapting sort of a political form that they knew well from the Ottomans and applying it to their new interactions with a new state um, of Yugoslavia. Uh, across the regions, Muslims recognized that a hierarchy of citizenship was emerging in this new country, and they were at the bottom. A prominent mufti in Bosnia called attention to this hierarchy in a petition to the government at the same time, complaining that local Serbs wanted to, quote, turn Muslims into second or third class citizens and replace freedom and equality with inequality and brotherhood with vengeful persecutions, end quote. The courts, he emphasized, were treating Muslims uh, and non-Muslims differently, as did the social services that were emerging in this, the country. So for example, an Orthodox Christian could get money to rebuild his home, regardless of what sort of what side of the war he had been on, but a Muslim could not do so after the war. So there was sort of this opportunity on the ground for, Mus for Christians to be understood as loyal, even if they had not been, and Muslims did not have that same sort of right. Another petition asked the government to, quote, protect Muslims like a minority. So here we see them understanding that maybe we're a minority, maybe we're not a minority, but we should be protected like a minority. So they're trying to tease out what this minority status means in a new European system. Now in a system where engaging with the state as a Muslim seemed a disadvantage, how could Muslims turn their minority status into an advantage? How could it be used as leverage to protect their rights in their communities? The answer they came up with was to use the new international minority status to negotiate a certain disengagement from the state. And they decided that the best way to achieve equality and political freedom would be if they had the right to define the legal framework of their community on its own terms. They wanted Yugoslavia to agree to preserve Islamic law and all of its associated social and legal institutions from the Ottoman period. The belief that political freedom in a European democracy was contingent upon the preservation of Sharia became so pervasive that the first Muslim political organization to form in the South called itself the Party of Islamic Association for Preserving Law. So what did it mean to preserve law? Certainly they expected things like marriage and inheritance and social organization to be under their control. But they also anticipated the power to control the vafs, the pious endowments, which were not just bursars that distributed funds, uh, but actually created budgets and shaped the character of institutions. So they want to be able to use their vaf, their pious endowments, to sort of disassociate from the state, run their own schools, run their own local political committees. Um, there was also a political angle to preserving Sharia. Many of the local Muslims on the ground had sort of become this category I like to think of as generalist elite. They were simultaneously kind of the wealthiest person and the most educated, uh, and they had formed had some sort of political position. And what happens is, if as they start to preserve Sharia, they're able to sort of codify all of that into a single role as sort of a town's grand mufti. 
Now, it's not clear if the Yugoslav authorities understood what a separate legal system would mean for Muslims, but progressive, secular-minded Muslims certainly did, and they fought against this tooth and nail. Muslims, a political poster warned in 1920, it is a lie and the meanest deception if anyone tells you that we cannot be as protected in this state as any other citizen. We do not need external help. Our, our rights are guaranteed by the state's laws. But the vast majority of Muslims felt differently, and they made their political support of the new Yugoslav government contingent on their ability to define what legal rights would mean for them. Now, I think it's precisely because Muslims were considered a minority that they could make arguments for a separate legal system. Nation states with Muslim majorities, like Albania or Turkey, found that Sharia law was incompatible with their modernizing and secular state-building projects, and so they eliminated. But in Yugoslavia, the Muslim leadership won, and the first constitution enshrined a Sharia judiciary uh, in 1921. Even Muslims who lived in parts of the country that had previously had civil law now had a legal requirement to abide by the rulings of the Sharia judiciary. Any non-Muslim woman married to a Muslim man was required to abide by the Sharia judiciary. And anyone who was engaged in a business arrangement with the Waf, the pious endowments, uh, also fell under the jurisdiction of a Sharia judiciary. So a Muslim socialist at the time called this a, quote, medieval currency for buying Muslim votes for the state. But Muslims across the country hailed it as a victory. Now, this is, I think, an unusual, possibly unique, although I'd be interested to know if we have anything similar in Greece, accommodation of minority protections. We certainly see cases in other places where communities received basic legal rights and sort of rights to sort of social segregation. But this is a case where the Yugoslav state agrees to fund a Sharia judiciary and mandates that all Muslims are required to sort of abide by its rulings. It is accompanied with a whole system, right? If you're going to have a Sharia judiciary, you need schools to educate Sharia judges. So that's what they do. The University of Belgrade creates a faculty of Sharia law um, where people are studying Quranic studies and Arabic um, and, and law. They also need to have times where government officials actually have to weigh in on things. If there's a debate within, the two Sharia judges are disagreeing on something. So we see here sort of just two documents that show you kind of how Sharia, a Sharia judiciary becomes bureaucratized within the state. Um, the image on the left is an order from the government to stop using Ottoman Turkish in the Sharia judiciary, and, and the image on the right is from the independent state of Croatia um, uh, discussing a statute of how to reorganize the Sharia judiciary. So what do we make of this? <laughs> Was the enshrinement of Sharia an innovative political compromise? Was it a radical experiment in how a democracy could handle um, minority protections? Was it the only way for Muslims to exercise religious freedom, as they argued, in a state that, you know, where Muslims were being stripped of rights on an active daily basis? These questions were actually debated throughout Yugoslavia for the next three decades. Uh, everybody understood, both sort of the political elite, the religious elite, local Muslim communities, that this was somehow an experiment and that they needed to negotiate how it was going to work out. But I think what is, becomes clear 
is that Muslims were, in a legal sense then, fundamentally separated from the rest of the citizenry. They were embedded and accepted into the Yugoslav nation state. You don't have a clause in your constitution for a certain segment of your population without expecting them to remain part of your uh, sort of citizenry. And yet they are also kind of a legal other. And I think this tension is really important for thinking about sort of how the whole question of Muslims in Europe then evolves over the 20th century. This simultaneously part, part of a community and also sort of somehow conceived of as separate. So I'd like to, I've got to, I think about five more minutes. I'd like to um, step back for a moment and talk about sort of four sort of bigger points that I think that this story can help us make sense of. First, come back to what I opened with is this idea of empires and nation states. And I think this story is sort of one example of, of what we now know is this very messy process of tr transition. Historians have long emphasized that you know, 1918, one system ended and a new system began. And so they kind of emphasize this idea of rupture. Um, but I think what we start to see in, in a lot of the literature on the Balkans is that this transformation was, was quite gradual, and it invo involved negotiation and reinvention of imperial principles in law, local politics, and social norms. This negotiation often happened on the local community level, but it also happened on the state level. The structures of empire and the worldviews of imperial subjects would shape the laws and political systems and economic structures of the states that came after. Secondly, we often talk about minority communities in this sort of interwar period as groups being acted upon rather than as agents. And especially within the Balkans, if anyone knows anything about Muslims in the, in the teens and the 20s, it's usually sort of the mass expulsions um, and guerrilla conflict in, in the Balkans. But amid this story, there was a lot of minority communities who spotted a huge potential of this post-war moment. So I think it's important for us to remember that there is this other story of minorities in which, while they're experiencing violence, they're also actively negotiating and looking forward to figure out where their place is going to be in, in the next post-war order. Muslims learn to negotiate so well that during um, uh, the, the Second World War, they convinced the Croat Ustasha, the Croat fascists, to turn a major cultural center into the Mosque of Zagreb. They, did, they also learned to negotiate through rallies. And here's an example of in the 1930s. So we see kind of the petitioning, extension of Ottoman politics. We see sort of a negotiating, which stems from sort of the ways that the great powers were requiring negotiation. And by the 1930s, Muslims are actively engaged with public mass protest as well. So minority protections might not have protected minorities from violence, but they still allowed minorities a place to shape the institutions and experience that they were going to have afterwards. Now this brings me to my third point. Because minority protection clauses only gave power to groups of minorities, those minorities gradually became forced to unify, unify along whatever lines the state defined for those groups. So, so much for national self-determination. For better or worse, an invented minority had to think of itself as a group and figure out what it wanted. 
So Sufi Muslims in Kosovo had to come to some sort of agreement with Sunni Muslims in Bosnia to figure out what the Sharia judiciary was going to look like. And this created tremendous tension within Muslim communities across the region. Muslims had conflicting customs, conflicting social norms, and conflicting interpretations of Sharia. But with the state Sharia system and a centralized nation state, they had to develop a single system, a single body of laws, a single sort of bureaucratic structure. The pressure to form a Muslim minority fueled conflict between Muslims. There were assassinations, there were bombings. In 1923, one Muslim newspaper warned that if this dynamic continues, the result will be civil war in which Muslims will slaughter Muslims, quote. And in the 1940s, during and after World War II, this prediction is gruesomely realized. So finally, I think that this story asks us to rethink the way we conceive of Islam in Europe, and frankly today also the legal crisis we're facing here in America. Um, if you open any newspaper on the current refugee crisis or question of Islam and secularism, Muslims are overwhelmingly described somehow as new arrivals, as an other to a pre-existing European norm. Um, Muslims are framed as tolerated or assimilated or managed, but always in the sort of framework of being new immigrant diaspora. Um, but what's important is that all over Eastern and Southeastern Europe, Muslims were part of the state building process from the outset. Austria-Hungary, Greece, Bulgaria, Serbia, Montenegro, Yugoslavia, Albania, Poland, Russia, the Soviet Union, all of these states developed policies that responded to distinct Muslim communities that were, from the, part, from the start, part of these states. I think one of the most incongruous um, images is this idea of creeping Sharia, which invokes a cultural clash between Islamic law and European society. There are obviously many problems with this concept, but the one that I think is at the forefront is that it's just inaccurate. Since 1878, many European states, including Austria-Hungary and then Yugoslavia, had somehow sponsored or accommodated different forms of Sharia judiciaries in their laws, in their bureaucracies, and in Yugoslavia's case, in its constitution. So Muslims were not simply marginalized populations or new arrivals whose story should be seen as tangential to this sort of dominant narrative, um, they were part of the process. And I think to understand the state building process, we need to stop seeing Muslims constantly as sort of this other um, and, and start seeing how their role shaped the states and, and the bureaucracies and the legal cultures themselves. Um, I think I'll leave it there. Uh, I think we're just about done. Um, and here's just a photograph um, of Sarajevo that I, I love. Um, this is the city where I did most of my research for my first book. Um, and you can see here sort of the, the minarets, and you also see the major Orthodox church and the Catholic church. And you can kind of, as you go out, you see sort of the socialist structures, which I think shows us these layered pasts and as they continue throughout the 20th century from sort of the Ottoman through the socialist and, and now today to the sort of uh, Saudi-funded mega malls uh, out in the uh, suburbs. So I will leave it there and uh, look forward to your questions. 
and anything is fair game. So I know some of you have questions on more recent stuff. Anything, yeah. And you also see the heavy pollution from which Sarajevo is I think that actually is mostly fog. Uh, but it is a fog and pollution. It is a combination. Um, but the city is sort of has this dense fog that settles. And, mountains. Exactly. And one of the other cities nearby called Maglai actually means fog. <laughs> So, um, yeah, uh, very fascinating material. Uh, I have a question about the, the perspective from the Yugoslav state. Mm -hmm. uh, what was their, what were the considerations involved in determining whether to, and ultimately to grant uh, minority protection to Muslims? What kind of debates took place within the halls of power in Belgrade? How much was pressure from the great powers the main factor? Um, or were there Yugoslav liberals who, who thought this was, this was a good idea? Mm -hmm. Uh, and the second question is about enforcement, um, the extent to which uh, the, legal, um, the legal rules granted to these individual communities, um, how uniformly that was actually practiced, mm -hmm. and whether or it would depend, depend on whether it was urban clusters or concentrated groups of Muslims. Mm -hmm. What about the rural folks who are way out in the middle of nowhere, mm -hmm. surrounded by non-Muslims? Was there any way that, that this could also be, be enforced uh, on the ground? Mm -hmm. Great questions. So the Yugoslav state had trouble, like many new states, with minority protections in general. They didn't like the idea that they had to give people rights right, that were outside the confines. But they were more concerned with Hungarians and Germans than they were in Italians. Um, who they viewed as sort of the belligerent parties than they were with Muslims themselves. And the way that they viewed this was political negotiation. They got Muslims to they they got Muslims to side with them politically in exchange for promising the Sharia judiciary. Um, and there was a lot of resistance within intellectual communities, but at a purely political level, the government viewed this as a, kind of an opportunity to silence a minority group that might protest with this promise. And initially, they tried to just say, we'll do it as a law. And the Muslim leadership pushed back and said, no, we don't trust your laws. It has to be a constitutional clause. Um, and so that was why it ends up in, in the Constitution. And they also it, there's also a constitutional clause for the autonomy of the Vafs, the pious endowments. Um, the, the way that it gets implemented is, is kind of fascinating. Um, rural folks, what, what starts to happen is people see it as sort of another layer of bureaucracy. And because it's emerging at the same time as state modernization, um, people like want courts. So the rural communities petition and say, you know, we need a we need a we need our own Sharia court. We can't schlep over a river in ice to get you know like married. We need things locally. Um, and so there's sort of a request to expand the Sharia, whole Sharia structure. So the Yugoslav state actually creates Sharia courts where none had existed previously. They, they put like, various kind of imams in communities that didn't have them. They helped to establish Muslim schools where there had been none. Um, and so they actually kind of get on board. But then what happens in the 1930s, Yugoslavia becomes authoritarian. And then the new government is like, what are we doing? Like, this is not conducive to centralization in a modern state. And so then they begin to kind of infiltrate and crack down. And they require, for example, that you know, any imam has to be fluent in Serbo-Croatian. Right? So you have to be able to communicate in the language. They, 
forbid Ottoman Turkish in writing. So they, they kind of go through this experiment over the 20s, and by the 30s then they're trying to clarify things. And they also, there's a big move within the government uh, or a big sort of dynamic debate over whether or not they should publish law books that define what Sharia is um, and require all Muslims to sort of abide by a centralized Sharia, um, which is not what Muslim leadership wanted to do because they had a lot of, sort of local autonomy and individual sort of muftis were making these choices and decisions in, in their own communities. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so I just want to follow up on that. So then this, this sort of centralization coming under you know, Alexander in the 30s. Mm-hmm. So then when Ostasha takes over, and if I'm not mistaken, they, they consider these actually Croats of Muslim faith, right? They become sort of Croats. Is there any kind of more easing up of the centralization? Are your Muslims getting kind of more autonomy under the uh, uh, fascists? The Muslims think they're going to get more autonomy under the fascists, but the fascists also have a problem with sort of they don't want too much autonomy. And so many Muslim leaders support the uh, fascists, the rival of the fascists. Uh, many of them support the Nazis. Um, when they come as an occupying, but gradually uh, occupying regime, gradually by 1943, so the first two years of the war, they're willing to work with the Ustasha, um, but as the Ustasha sort of create their own restrictions on Islam, uh, Muslims push back and they try to kind of break away from the Croatian state and become a Nazi protectorate. They see, they think they're going to have more autonomy under the Nazis than they will under the Croats, and a, a really important sort of unusual example of this is they get very upset when the Ustasha pass racial laws that um, require Muslim Roma to be identified as non-Aryan. And they fight with them to make Muslim Roma considered Aryan. And the Germans are more willing to kind of work with this. They don't seem to care as much on the ground about you know, 200 Muslim Roma. But the Ustasha are sort of on principle want to very clear racial lines. So it, it, they have a lot of, there is, they, they anticipate more flexibility and autonomy, <coughs> but they don't actually get it. Thanks. So. Yes. Well, I'm surprised, I'm switching my question here. Uh, I wasn't aware of uh, the Nazi attempt to establish an Aryan identity in Yugoslavia. Uh, so tell me about that. Well, the Nazis didn't impose it. The uh, local Ustasha, Croat Ustasha government, which was sort of a Nazi satellite state, um, they were uh, radical right, uh, pro-Nazi, fascist, nationalist. Uh, they created a whole sort of racial system that mirrored the Nazi Nuremberg laws. Um, and it was, it was ambiguous because they considered non-Aryans to be <laughs> uh, what is it, Jews, Roma, and then they had this category of, quote, other, uh, Ini, um, which they then used sort of provocatively to put anyone that they wanted to include in there. So this is how they, they implemented a genocidal campaign against uh, Serbs, Orthodox Serbs, could be considered Ini. Uh, a Muslim who identified politically with Serbia was could be classified as racially other, but a Muslim who identified politically as Croat was considered Aryan. 
So the system is just doesn't make sense on the ground. And the Muslim leadership really wanted sort of a clearly defined system in which all Muslims are like Aryan and guaranteed Aryan rights. And the, the local leadership won't do it. They also actively convert Jews um, to Islam and then try to protect those Jews under the idea that once you've converted to Islam, you are no longer actually Jewish. And so it, it creates this real tension in sort of racial laws and, and the way it's going to sort of play out on the ground. They end up, the Nazis end up deporting all the Jews anyway, even those who converted to Islam. But then the Muslim communities like send packets in the same way you see in other areas of the Holocaust where Jewish communities would try to send things. The Muslim communities send things to local concentration camps to try and help their Muslims because they don't see them as Jews or Roma. They just see them as Muslim. Um, I was mystified when you were giving your talk about why the Muslim community would see an advantage in the Nazi occupation. You pretty much answered that. And I was also curious about what the connection was of the solidarity or empathy they had with the Jewish citizens who were being sent to the camps mm -hmm. from Serbia. But what I really want to know now is what was the Muslim participation with the partisans and what was the partisan treatment of the Muslims? Mm -hmm. So this is what I was alluding to when I said we see civil war where Muslims are fighting Muslims. Muslims were on every side of the civil conflict in Yugoslavia in the 1940s. There were Muslim partisan units, there were I mean, some of the sort of first big Muslim uh, partisan units in, in northeastern Bosnia were Muslim. And there were also Muslim, uh, the, there was a Waffen SS unit of Muslims that was sponsored and funded by the Nazis that was operating in, the Bos in Bosnia. Um, and there were also you know, Muslim local legionnaires and militias and Muslim ustashas. And so you had Muslims on a lot of different sides of this trying to work out militarily, I think some of the same questions that they had previously been trying to work out um, through sort of discourse and law and politics. And there was no clear sense of what being Muslim was supposed to mean. And even after the war ends, you, know, you have a number of Muslim partisans uh, who then become prominent communist party leaders. And they are the ones who initiate the elimination of Sharia law in 1946 which then sparks a Muslim dissident resistance movement which arms and goes to war against Tito's Yugoslavia. Um, yes? So to uh, uh, relate to what you just told us about the, uh, the shift in, in 1946, so I, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the changes that occurred following World War II. Uh, for me, one of the interesting things about what you just presented is that it seems that in the, uh, in the kingdom of Yugoslavia, uh, these uh, Muslims were, the notion of Muslim was much more, uh, much broader, mm -hmm. including not just Slavic-speaking Muslims, but also Albanians, Turks, Roma, and so on. And if I'm not mistaken, in communist Yugoslavia, it was slightly different, where Muslims recognized as a nation, but that was pretty much limited to Slavic-speaking Muslims, whereas Turks and Albanians and others recognized as minorities. Mm -hmm. If you could just sort of give us perhaps some broad, broad strokes, what are the major differences? Yeah, so you're absolutely right that um, 
So the idea of Muslim in the interwar was one that was being negotiated actively. There were still Turkish speakers and Albanian speakers and Slavic speakers, but they didn't quite come, they, they weren't sure what that was going to mean. Gradually over the course of the interwar, they increasingly become cemented into these categories based on their primary language. And I use the term primary because many Muslims spoke multiple languages. Um, so essentially by the late 1930s, many Muslims felt compelled to choose. So someone who came and had you know, an Albanian-speaking mother and a Slavic-speaking father who was one of these people who was operating in both systems. Um, there's a famous guy, uh, Haji Pasic is his last name in Slavic, and Bluta is his last name in Albanian. I mean, so like names that mean sort of that have no kind of similarities to us um, as, as we hear them. Uh, you know, and he had to choose right, by the end of the 30s, uh, and, and especially through the war, um, these lines became sort of cemented. Um, after the war, the, 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 the Yugoslav government, the communist government, does create a Muslim nation um, to be sort of one of the new nations, and they do this through a census. And so you can choose whether you're going to be you know, Croat, Serb, or Muslimani, Muslim. <laughs> um, and they, they codify that in the 1960s. And then in the 1990s, the Muslim leadership changes that to Bosniak, because they said, this is weird. Why, do, why is Muslim, the, the Croats aren't called the Catholic nation, and the Serbs aren't the Orthodox nation? Um, but part of, I think, that this shift and this consolidation also speaks to sort of the ways that nations themselves started to cement. Because in 1940, a Muslim could be a Croat. Today, that's a very rare sort of understanding. There actually are, the, for, the, the last minister of culture um, in Croatia, who was there for the last two years, was a Muslim. Um, so you still have some Muslim Croats, uh, but now it's always sort of, they're always seen as Muslim Croat, right? Not just Croat, right? But you don't say someone is Catholic Croat, you just say they're Croat. So we see this kind of, this shift. But you do have kind of a, a, a changes that occur after the war. And in part, this is, you know, there is such strong Muslim resistance, especially among conservative and rural communities to communism. Um, and, and one of the ways that sort of the state papers over that is, is by kind of creating this really strong new identity that Muslims can, can buy into. And they even like rewrite history so that the Habsburgs are now seen as the founders, right? The Bosniak nation has been you know, 300 years and it was always fighting the Ottomans and they, they kind of create this other, this other narrative. But it's, it's in part, I think, done to, to repress conservative Muslims, because you have a pretty vibrant um, Muslim Brotherhood organization in Yugoslavia in the late 40s and early 50s, um, which is actively sort of trying to fight um, both through dissent and, and banditry, um, the government. Yes? Earlier you mentioned that uh, there had to be a resolution of some kind between different interpretations. Mm -hmm. Well, they weren't actually more numerous, but they were more politically powerful and savvy. Uh, and they, going back to, to Scott's question at the beginning, they were the ones that um, sort of joined with the government in the 1920s and actually go and lead the sort of campaign to eliminate dervish orders, which were the bro uh, brotherhood lodges within Sufism. That initiative does not come from the state. It comes from the Sunni Muslims who view their sort of Sufi 
co-religionists as not following a true Islam. And then they go and they also, they eliminate um, the dervish orders, the teke, uh, and a number of other sort of relations. And then they gradually try to also sort of change the legal structures of inheritance, uh, which was a major dispute between Sufi Muslims in the south and, and more Sunni Muslims in the north. Um, also alcohol, because there were a number of uh, Sufi orders in, in sort of the central Balkans that used alcohol in their services. Um, and, in, and this was something that the Sunni Muslims wanted to eliminate. And I think in part, it actually comes to this idea that you know, many of the Sunni Muslims who were leading this were European educated. They spoke multiple languages. Um, and they bought into the idea of being European Muslim. We're going to be part of a European Muslim community, and we're Yugoslavs, and this is our state. And we've stayed, and we're committed to it, and we're going to create you know, a community. And they view kind of the illiterate, insular, mystical practices of the South um, in, a, in a really derogatory light. They write a lot about how there's two kinds of Muslims, you know, the clean Muslims and the dirty Muslims. I mean, they use this kind of language in their rhetoric to sort of impose modernization. They want windows on houses. They also want factories. They want Muslims learning Serbo-Croatian. They feel like you know, any Muslims represents all Muslims. And so all Muslims need to be educated and citizens. So what is Sharia today in this complicated zone? Well, it doesn't really exist in Bosnia. I mean, there's still sort of people will kind of, in, in much the same way that in America, you know, you might get married in a Catholic church and also, you know, like you might see yourself as having a Catholic marriage, right? That's sort of how it would exist today in Bosnia. Uh, but there is an area of southern Serbia where uh, many Muslims have sort of started to live within sort of this pseudo Sharia system. So you see the return of polygamous marriages. You see sort of a lot of women uh, dressed uh, in more conservative styles that we sort of imagine as sort of Middle Eastern today, but used to actually be part of the Balkan style. So this sort of idea that they're all imposed from without, I think, is is false. Um, and it's uh, it's it's a it's an un, it's it's a strange development because it is not within the state structure. So unlike in the 1920s, where you know, Sharia judiciary was enshrined in the Constitution, and then it becomes part of the state, right? So there's oversight, there's bureaucracy, there's educational re requirements. You know, if you're going to be a judge, you have to pass these tests, you have to know these formula. It becomes sort of part of, of state process. In, in southern Serbia today, it's very much just doing its own thing. And, I think that that can be sort of problematic, um, especially for more vulnerable parts of the population, you know, women who are in marriages that they want to get out, children, these kinds of things. If you don't have any kind of, yeah, I'm showing myself as pro-state here, if you don't have any kind of state, then oftentimes these populations can become marginalized. And Yes, Deborah. Yeah, thank you. I have many, many thoughts, and we'll, we'll continue. But I wanted to ask again about the category of Muslim a little bit and mm -hmm. how that how that category has changed from the late Ottoman context to then maybe this intermediary context and then the, the you know this interwar period under the minority rights regime. One of the maps you showed showed the different ethnicities. Mm -hmm. Some were visible, and other other groups that would emerge are not yet marked there. But I was curious, like how in the late Ottoman period did the Muslim communities 
see themselves mm -hmm. and how did that change and the connected to that or, or stay the same um, mm -hmm. um, because I mean my understanding of the Ottoman context was religion was still the primary category of organization oftentimes those other cultural ethnic or linguistic differences mm -hmm. were not legible to the state um, and then also did some Muslim groups take the opportunity of the minority rights regime to, like when you mentioned the, 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 the tension between the Sufi and the Sunni Muslims, was that the Sunni trying to assert a kind of power that they didn't have in Ottoman times? Mm -hmm. Or was that, I, I don't know, are there continuities or ruptures there? Mm -hmm. That's great. So, yes, under the late Ottoman period, Muslims very much thought of themselves in religious terms. Right? You had you know, sort of the idea of the millet system was operating on the ground um, in like the turn of the 20th century. Um, but what was different was that there was no pressure. That system, there was no pressure to homogenize because that system enabled separate local cultures. Right? The way Islam was structured was you know, while there was a leader of religious appointments in Istanbul, there was on the ground, like, you know, a local mufti just made, you know, his decisions and the community would abide by them. Um, so and it was there, more localized rather it than was like incredibly ethnic, localized, ethnic yes. And so there would be, you know, multiple, you know, multiple people in, or, you know, different muftis in different regions and you go to the one that you know, right. sort of fits with what you do. Um, it's only when you actually have the minority rights regime. Well, no. Two, first, you have the centralizing states, which are trying to sort of make sense of people and, and want, I think, to fit Islam into the model of Christianity, um, and especially the model of the Orthodox Church. Like they, they, you see Serbia and, and Bulgaria also kind of create this system of kind of they want like a patriarch, so they have a chief mufti, and then they want like local religious courts, so they create like Sharia thing. You know, courts and and they have a ministry of, of education um, or ministry of religion. Well, no, it's a bureau of religion which is embedded under the ministry of education, and that ministry, you know, handles all like, complaints within the Orthodox Church. So then, that would just makes sense to have a parallel one, right? And Muslims resist this because hey, like you can't just create a parallel idea of Islam. Like Islam doesn't function in the same ways as Christianity. It's a, it's a different system of belief and system of structures, it's not as hierarchical and it's not sort of as legislated. You know, you don't have canon law. You have a body of interpretation and debate and Islam is, is very much about sort of debate and discussion and discourse and Christianity is more sort of hierarchical. This is the way it is. So, yeah, do you want to jump well, in the there? The Soviet Union tries to deal with, like, Baptists and Pentecostals uh -huh. instead of Lutherans and Orthodox. They have the same problem. Mm -hmm. Like, these people just don't, aren't organized that way. I think that it's kind of a European state problem, mm -hmm. as I think that both Orthodoxy and Catholicism operate in similar ways, and they don't quite know how to deal with a religion right, that doesn't fit in the model of religion that they understand. And so what happens then is, you know, there is a pressure. Well through, there's actually in, in World War II when the Ustasha come in, this goes back to, to your question earlier, you know, Muslims resist. They're like, you're trying to turn us into the Catholic Church. We're not a Catholic Church. We don't work that way. Do you know anything about Islam? Like, the mufti is not the equivalent of an archbishop. An imam does not have the same right as priests. And, like, one way this comes out is, like, the state, Belgrade, is like, well, maybe just you could have imams, you know, do marriages. Maybe they could just marry people. 
And the Muslims are like, you can't have an imam conduct a marriage. Like, marriage is, is a legal proceeding and has to be contracted by a judge. You can't have, like, an imam is sort of in charge of pastoral care, right? So it was like, they felt like the state was fundamentally misunderstanding like, the entire way that their religious structures were organized. So to go back to the late Ottoman era and the sort of the legacy of the millet system. So I just wonder. So I, I, if I'm not mistaken, once Serbian, Bulgaria, Greece uh, captured parts of what used to, used to be Ottoman Macedonia, you know, the question that emerges like all these local Christians, like who who are they ethnic? Mm-hmm. Right? Are they are they Bulgarian? Are they Serbian? And so people sort of had to decide. So sort of, they adopt one of these. Uh, imposed identities. And I wonder if something similar happened to Muslims. Mm-hmm. Like, do you find like situations where, let's say, I don't know, in, um, you know, Muslims in, uh, I don't know, Kosovo had to decide whether Albanian or Turks or whatever else? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that in certain areas on the borders, you do see Muslims making choices. You know, especially between Slavic Muslim and Albanian Muslim in places like um, Montenegro in the southern Serbia, the Sanjak of Novi Pazar, which is like this region between Serbia and Montenegro today. Um, and in parts of Kosovo where you also do have Slavic-speaking Muslims. I think there was a lot of pressure. But gradually they sort of, the idea is imposed upon them. Like Albanian Muslims are sort of just incorporated into this idea and I think a lot of people didn't really feel a particular, like an affinity to being Albanian or Turkish. They're like, I'm just a Muslim. I'm just, you know, speaking it, I'm speaking, you know, yeah, I'm speaking Turkish in the bazaar. Like, that doesn't, ident- that's not who I am as like an identity. I'm, you see, so you see sort of a, a real emphasis here on local identity. So people identify like, I'm a Saraya, I'm a person from Sarajevo. You know, I'm a Pazaka, I'm a girl from Novi Pazar. Like, this kind of real local identity, I think, takes form. And then there's also an effort to kind of expand to an international, like, ummah, like an international Muslim. So there's a, so they associate and reach out to, you know, the Muslim Red Crescent and like, British Muslim organizations. So you see both this local emphasis and this international emphasis and a rejection of the national, which is why I think you end up with all these petitions to, like, join you know, the British Empire or the Nazi Empire. Or become a protectorate of America. Like they're just not necessarily. They don't have the same stakes that you know you see with Christians in Macedonia, where you know, your choice is you know, Bulgarian, Serb, or Greek, and you better pick one, because otherwise you're you know going to be deported or, or killed or forced to choose. Okay. Well, please join me in thanking Emily Gimbel for a great Thank talk. You.